enough time to get the McDonald's ordered and delivered. So um, pray for the McDonald's delivery to go through in time. That would be uh, that'd be good. I won't hear the last of it if it, if it doesn't. So um, good to see you guys. We're going to start a new series. If you have your Bibles, we're in Ephesians 4. And... Um, we're looking at what's commonly referred to as the five-fold ministry. And uh, this morning, it's my job to look at the, one of those, which is evangelism. And I was saying to Dave uh, just a couple of days ago, <clears throat> I felt to say something. And then as I began to kind of spend time thinking, praying, reading about it, suddenly I felt like we could probably speak about evangelism for several sermons. And then uh, something happened on Friday that just brought my focus back uh, to where I felt the Lord was really kind of just prompting me, which is really about the heart of evangelism, the heart of an evangelist. Um, Because if we don't get the heart right, you can forget everything else. We can know the theology. I'll talk a little bit about that in a second. We can do courses in evangelism. Uh, We can have techniques nailed. But honestly, if the heart isn't convicted and postured in a certain way in terms of what evangelism has done to us and for us, uh, we have been evangelized, and for those who have yet to be evangelized, then honestly, we might as well give up. It is really the heart, and it is out the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. Um, a definition of evangelism, uh, Spurgeon said that the definition of evangelism is, is, a, is a beggar showing another beggar where to get bread. I like that definition because there's something about the fact that we're all in need of the bread of life and that we recognize that we're not kind of doing this top down, it's not a power thing, that we have received the bread and we're just trying to show somebody else where to get the same, where to put their confidence and trust and where to receive the blessing of that confidence and trust. Michael Green says that evangelism is about overflow, overflow. And actually there's a good kind of uh, theological remit for that. If you quickly turn to 1 Thessalonians uh, verse for for we know brothers loved for we know brothers loved by God that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the holy spirit and with full conviction now that word conviction the greek for that is pleuphoria that literally means overflow I'm so nervous about saying the Greek for this is this, because I'm aware of the Greeks in the room, but I'm, I'm told reliably that there is a sense that there's an overflow, that evangelism comes from the overflow of the heart. And when Paul writes this in Thessalonians, he says, this is how it came to you. It came to you in power, it came to you by the Spirit, and it came with this sort of conviction, this overflow that we couldn't help but do it. And so, uh, for the sake of today, that's the definition that I think is probably the one I feel the Lord is drawing us to, not necessarily the technicalities, because friends, honestly, we can talk about evangelism in such an abstract way and forget that evangelism is linked to eternity. It's linked to eternity. The Word tells us that Jesus comes back when the Word has been preached to all people. So in engaging in evangelism, we are linking to something of eternal uh, significance. When people respond to evangelism, when they give their lives to Christ, it is of eternal significance. And so when we think about the word evangelism, we shouldn't uh, kind of detach it from the sense that this is engaging in an eternal work and of eternal significance. And this was pressed home to me just on Friday 
uh, a, a chap that we knew fairly well, who worked at Princess Park Manor, who's one of the security guards. You know, we got to know him over the last 12 months, and I got to tell him about church. I told him that I was a pastor, a vicar. I even offered to pray for some things. You know what I never did? I never actually told him the gospel. I never actually did the work of an evangelist. And on Friday, he dropped down dead, found in the hut on Princess Park Manor. We can't detach evangelism in such a way from the eternal significance of it. And my fear is that when we use that word, we already start thinking about systems. We're thinking about church growth. We're thinking about technique. We're thinking about just spreading something. It's not that. It is an eternal work. It's an eternal work. And me telling you that he dropped down dead feels like a shock, but it shouldn't be. But the problem is that we breathe in this cultural oxygen that tells us that we don't really even have to think about death. Everything we do is to kind of gloss over this. The fastest selling, the fastest growing industry is around cosmetics because we literally don't want to look like death is near. We spend so much of our time breathing in this oxygen that's kind of dulling our senses that death is coming for all of us and tomorrow is not guaranteed. And we should look at evangelism in that light. That's the light to look at it in, in that light. Let me just say a few technical things and then really just share a bit of a story and maybe it will resonate with you. So Ephesians 4, um, five gifts. Uh, are they awful today? We believe they are. The thrust of the text, um, I should probably read it, sorry. That was really, really bad. Um, I've jumped into Ephesians, but, uh, Thessalonians without really planning to do that. Uh, Ephesians 4, let me read it. Um, I'll pick it up in uh, verse 8. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. This is a quote from Psalm. And what Paul is doing is using that quote about Moses and then kind of urging his readers to make that memory that this is what Jesus has done as well. So he ascends on high, he led a host of captives and he gives gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is one who has also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Just keep that in mind. He might fill all things. And having filled and wanting to fill and planning to fill all things... He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. So Jesus ascends and he gives us these gifts. Why? To equip the whole body, to equip us 
uh, to be the workers of ministry, to do the work of ministry. So do we believe that all of these gifts are still operational today? Yes. Why? Because have we achieved a full level of unity? No. Have we achieved a full level of uh, maturity? No. Is there anything in the text that tells us that some of these gifts have ceased? No. There is a sense that these gifts are given and they continue to be given. Now, some people, just a technical detail, will say apostles and prophets aren't for today because later in the text it says that the church was built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets is that true absolutely was the church built what we are sat in today was it built on the word of the prophets in the old testament yes was it built on the work of the apostles in the new testament yes could you look at those and say they are capital p capital a absolutely but is the work the apostolic ministry still going today i absolutely believe so are we still called, uh, as Paul tells us, to prophesy? Absolutely. Are we capital A apostles? I'm not sure. Are we capital P prophets like the Old Testament? Definitely not. And it's for our good that we're not. But the work and the ministry is still going. And why is it so that we could be equipped? We could be equipped, folks. This is not for the leadership team or those who did Bible school. And one of the things absolutely we're committed to as a church family is that everyone would find their ministry and their calling here. Every person would find their ministry and their calling here. That the church doesn't bottleneck at the capabilities of the pastor. That we don't structure things like this, where there's one pastor and everything rides on that pastor. I don't think this is what Ephesians 4 is showing us. I think what he gives is offices and gifts so that all of the church plays its role, that everybody operates in something. Now, do we sometimes evangelize? Yes. Are all evangelists? No. Well, sometimes you find yourself teaching somebody, a friend, family, kids. Yes. Does that mean that you're a teacher? Maybe not. But it is likely that one of these things will grab us. There is likely that something here that we will gravitate towards. Is this an exhaustive list? I'm not sure it is. But the point is that all of these things are given to us, to us, to you. And in your context, in your workplace, in the setting of being with friends and students, in your family, around your dinner table, that these gifts are given to us so that we could be equipped for the work of ministry. And for us to do that as a church, it means that culturally we have to hold on to some values. It means that actually we have to give space for people to walk in these things and sometimes to get them wrong before they get them right. Sometimes we have to give people the opportunity to do stuff and give space for them to be bad at it before they can be good. Sometimes it means taking risks. Sometimes it means that things will be messy. Sometimes people will mess up. But you know what? I would much rather have a church that was messy. I'd much rather be a commu in a community that was generous at giving opportunities and creating a context for people to flourish in what the Lord has called them to. And more than that, I think it's scriptural. I think it's biblical. Every single one of you in the room today has a calling on your life. 
And right now, if that voice is telling you, yeah, but not me, I want to tell you that that is a lie. It is a lie. In your context, God has placed you uniquely for this time and season. Psalm 139, he uniquely wired you knowing the days that were before you. He saw your frame and your substance even in the foundations of time itself, knowing that this day would happen. Acts tells us that our boundaries are apportioned by him. Our actual location and time and place has been apportioned by him. All of us are involved in this. All of us are swept up into it. Um, so over the next few weeks, we'll look at the other gifts. Dave's going to do Apostle, because um, I thought that was the toughest one to cover, so I was happy for Dave to take that. And so uh, looking forward to that. But in terms of evangelism, just want to quickly share a bit of a story and uh, something about the heart, and, and then... Um, and kind of just a few little technical things. What is evangelism? Uh, evangelism is essentially telling somebody about the good works of Jesus Christ. Uh, Dallas Willard said it's about kind of ravishing them with the blessings of Jesus, that they would so want the same thing that we've had. So it's sharing something. Is evangelism by words? Yes. Is it by actions? Yes. Did Sir Francis of Assisi say, preach the gospel and when necessary use words? No, he didn't. It's a complete and utter lie. Is, has there been a problem in the church, I think, leaning towards action rather than word? I think so. I think we've lost our confidence and our conviction to articulate the gospel. And the church grew on the confidence and the conviction of the gospel that came by words. When the church is persecuted, they are scattered and literally it says they chatted the gospel, they articulated it. And I think where the pendulum has swung uh, for many reasons is that we tend to think, well, if we do certain things and if we run certain programs, maybe we can persuade people into the kingdom. Maybe we can kind of show them that we're normal. And listen, I think there's a place for mission. I think there's a place to be wise about how we engage with the community. But there's also a place for just saying it. There's a place for just telling it in our own language, in a way that's simple, in a way that's honest and authentic to us. Is it through words? Yes. Is it through actions? Yes. Should they be separated out? No. Is it for everybody? Yes, it is. Acts 1.8, we've been called to be witnesses to what Jesus has done. Peter 1 says, give a defense. Always be ready to give a defense for the hope that is within you. 2 Corinthians, we have been given the, the gift of reconciliation, and now we are ministers of reconciliation. We are ambassadors of the kingdom. Is evangelism for everybody? Absolutely. Can we all share our story about what Jesus has done? Absolutely. Does that mean we're an evangelist? Not necessarily. But there is this kind of scriptural remit for us to engage in this, folks. And remember what I said at the beginning, in the light of eternity. In the light of what's going to happen to each and every one of us. Is evangelism discipleship? I think it is. What evangelism is not is about somebody standing on a stage and getting somebody to make a decision so that they cross the line. And not that there isn't a place for that, but statistically, it's not a very effective form of evangelism. 
if you look at all the major crusades that happened through the kind of 50s up into the early noughties, most research shows that less than a quarter of those who gave their lives to Jesus actually were still walking with Jesus in the years that followed. But there has been this kind of weird twist in evangelism that if we can just get people to pray the prayer and get them across the line, that's what it is. And I think that's actually error. What we need to be doing is saying evangelism and discipleship are so closely related and so interlinked. They're so kind of bonded together that we can't separate out the two because we're not looking for converts. We're looking for disciples. So when we share the gospel with somebody, actually what we're doing is in the flow of hoping that they would begin that process of becoming a disciple of Christ becoming an apprentice to his ways and thoughts and his actions and living those out in their context. And that means, friends, it happens through the local church. I'm not saying crusades are wrong, but I think primarily the thrust of it is that it happens through the local church. It happens through people like you and me. It happens when you have a daily contact with somebody like the security guard and wish you'd taken that opportunity or in your workplace or wherever your context is. That's how evangelism works because when it's done that way, then the church can help support that person, welcome them into a community and a family and build in the structures that enable them to engage in the process of discipleship and we can't separate out the two. Evangelism and discipleship have to go together. It was Jesus' final words to us, Jesus' last instruction, sorry, to us, that we would go and make disciples. That was his final instruction. The great commission was that we would do that. And that's essentially what we are about to make disciples. A few, um, a few things, uh, a little story, and maybe you resonate with this. When I, I first encountered the Lord, when I was about four or five, I was talking to Dave about this on the way to New Wine this week, and we were on about, I asked each other, when did you first really encounter Jesus? I don't remember much about being five, but I remember encountering the Lord. It was on top of a fruit and veg shop in an attic that my mum had been invited to. It was like a little church service. My family weren't churchgoers at all. But she'd been invited by a neighbour and she took me along, I think, for a little bit of moral support. Because, you know, sometimes your kids can be a great buffer and a great excuse. And so, uh, and so, um, and so uh, but I remember there was just a lady leading worship and she just sat on a chair and the thought, and it's vivid to me, clear as a bell of, this is real. There was something about her worship that was so authentic that as a five-year-old, I thought, this is, this is, this is real. This, this, is, this is true. And from that place, I went home and I started telling my friends, family, and my cousins about this person, Jesus, like a five-year-old who has no experience would, but I told them about Jesus. And they still go on about that even today. Don't you just love those family dynamics when you haven't seen them for years and they remind you of the embarrassing things you did when you're five. But you know, it just seemed natural to me that this is true. It's something great in my heart and now I need to tell you. 
And then when I was 10, there were two um, traveling missionaries, two ladies, traveled to our village. We heard about them running this mission. By now, my mum was part of a church. And so we were kind of on the fringes of a church. And she again took me along, again, I think for the same reason. And, uh, I, and they prayed for people. And I saw the, you know, the sick being healed. I heard the gospel preached. And I had the same thing. This is true. And I went home that night. And I sincerely prayed to the Lord and said, I want to be a Christian. I want to do whatever it is to be a Christian. And then again, in a 10-year-old way, from the bottom of my heart, meant every single word that I said. And the next day I went into school and it was natural to me to tell people, this is true. This person, Jesus, is real and he's alive. And I actually feel tangibly different. And a mate of mine, who I won't say his name because we started video recording the sermons now. A mate of mine took the mickey and my first act of evangelism was to lay on hands but it was to lay on hands in such a way that I, I punched him in the nose and blood, I just remember the image of blood going up his glasses, it was amazing and I was because I was so, but this is true, how, how could you not and I just wanted to tell him and in my um, angst or whatever uh, I felt that that would be the best way to lead him to the Lord. You might be surprised to know that he hasn't become a Christian, as far as I'm aware. But that was it. And then through school, you know, school things happened. By the time I was at college, although I still believed in Jesus and held something deep within me, uh, my life was not reflective of a Christian at all. And a mate of mine uh, said, my friend Dan said, I want you to come to the thing called Soul Survivor. And I said, there's no way I'm going to spend a week with a bunch of Christians. I've done that, and I just don't want to do it. And he said, no, come to Soul Survivor. And then eventually he pays for me. And I'm like, oh, okay, now I feel like I have to go to Soul Survivor. I didn't go to a single meeting. And then on the last night, he came to me in desperation and said, look, I did pay for you to come to Soul Survivor. It would be really, really good if you just went to one meeting. Would you go to one meeting? And for those who don't know, Soul Survivor is a big Christian youth conference, about 10,000 people in a field in Somerset. And uh, so I thought, um, yeah, okay. So I went to this meeting, and the Lord hijacked me. And I don't know what I think about this theologically, but I felt the Lord lay on a line, left or right, in or out. And I was like, I'm in. I am totally in. And I went out, and I got in a phone box, because there were still phone boxes in that day, and I rang the pastor of my mum and dad, and I said, I've, I've encountered Jesus, and would you baptise me? So he said, come and see me. A few weeks later, I got baptised. Then became a youth worker in a tough area in South Yorkshire, uh, in my kind of immaturity and being rough around the edges, and again, couldn't help but tell people about Jesus. It was just so real and so natural. Came back from that, started working in a sales office. Still couldn't help but talk about Jesus. Uh, I was working for a debt recovery firm <clears throat> where there was a lot of dodgy stuff going on. I convinced myself the Lord had placed me there. And, uh, and basically it was in sales, it was commercial recovery. And, uh, and I remember one day we, we hadn't made enough sales and the manager was like, you guys are done, we're going to cut you and, and, 
and it was like the Friday deadline, it was two hours ago. And I stood up again in my immaturity and brazenness and just said, I will pray. I will pray that we, we smash the sales targets on the basis that you come to church on Sunday. And everybody in the office, because they just thought it was ridiculous, said, okay, yeah, we'll come to church on Sunday. We smashed that flipping sales target <laughs> with, one, <laughs> with one hour and ten minutes to go and dragged some of them along to church on Sunday, some cried off. But, you know, again, it was just the most natural thing. And then, after a while, trained as a probation officer and, and then went into working in business development. And then I started working for a church. And everything began to change a bit. Everything began to change a bit. And then I went to Bible college and trained to be a vicar and everything changed a lot. And suddenly I didn't feel that same conviction and that same impulse to share the good news of Jesus. And I've read tons of books on it. I mean, I've read so many books on missions, folks, and how to do missions. I, could, I wrote a thesis on it. But there was something in my heart that had been lost. I began to think about techniques. I began to think about programs. I began to think about the things that could work and, and how we can set these things up. But here, something had gone. Something had gone. And I don't know, but maybe, maybe you resonate with some of that. Maybe you've been around church a long time. And you know, I remember when I first got saved and I just couldn't help but tell people but something over time has changed. And, you know, some of that is that we have these wonderful programs. Guys, I love Alpha. I love Alpha. We led Alpha, it was one of the first things we did when we were here in our living room. And we did an Alpha the term before last year. It was, it was just brilliant. I love it. But do you know one of the dangers of Alpha? Is that we think that that's our evangelism box ticked that we can invite people along, or maybe not, but we do evangelism. And I want to ask the question, where is the faith in that? You see, what I'm worried about is that we do things that essentially exercise out our faith and reliance and dependency upon the Spirit. Because we think about techniques and programs that maybe have some level of success, and they absolutely have their place. But if it's not something that's burning and gripping our heart, I think we're doomed. And more than that, I think the people who don't yet know Jesus in this community are doomed. And again, going back to my first point, in the light of eternity, where's your heart in this? In the light of what is to happen and what is to come for us all, where is your heart in this? Even as a church minister, there have been periods where evangelism is way down my list. I might have told you this before, but um, I was speaking at a youth thing once, and there was this really cocky Liverpool fan, because they, <clears throat> well, anyway. But, uh, and then he, he asked me a question at the end of the talk, and he said, but, how do I do evangelism? Yeah, what, what do I actually do? And I said, well, um, 
clearly you're a Liverpool fan. I said, do all your friends at school know you're a Liverpool fan? He said, yeah. And I said, so, um, you know, your tutor group, they all know this? He said, yeah. I said, your year group? He said, yeah, most of them. I said, your teachers? He said, yeah, most of them. I said, oh, okay, do, you, do your family know that you support Liverpool? He said, yeah. I said, at what point did Liverpool Football Club ring you up and put you on a course and teach you how to tell people that you're a Liverpool fan? And he's like, well, I don't know what you're talking about. I said, no, but when did they, when did they kind of make you feel guilty about spreading the word of Liverpool and recruiting some more fans and supporters? And he said, I don't know. I said, but when did they put like a pamphlet in your hand so that you could just kind of drop it and run away and leave it there? And I said, I don't know. I've never had any of that. I said, but everybody knows you're a Liverpool fan because it's gripped your heart. The overflow, what Thess- 1 Thessalonians tells us, the overflow of your heart. And everybody knows. Friends, where's our hearts in this? Where's our hearts in this? And so much of that, I think, is about recognizing what we have received. So much about that, I think, is preaching the gospel to ourselves daily, reminding ourselves of where we were and where we are, of who we were and who we are. I just want to finish with a text. I think it's uh, just turn with me to Romans 9. I think this is one of the hardest texts. I think it's Romans 9. Paul says this, I am speaking the truth, which is his way of saying, I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul says, I'm not lying about this. There is such a sorrow in my heart. There is such a heaviness in my heart that I would wish myself to be cut off from Jesus for the sake of those who don't yet know him. When did we last weep for the lost? Did you really mean that point? I mean, are you actually saying that you would cut yourself off from Jesus? That you would go that road if it meant that more people could come to faith in him? And he's like, I'm not lying. I'm telling you the truth by by the Spirit. You see, folks, we don't look at evangelism as a program and an abstract functional system or the right words to say. It has to grip us here. What we have received has to grip us and our heart for the lost has to grip us. And honestly, I feel like when we get the heart right, the how follows. I feel like when we get the heart right, the how follows. Because there's something authentic in what we say. There's something real about what we say, however we say it. 
And I would much rather be a people that our hearts are so convicted for this that we're not reliant on the right things and techniques, but there's just something so authentic and real that we can't help but say it. I couldn't help but say it when I was four and 10 and 17 and when I was in that debt recovery office. I couldn't help it. Nobody told me because there was something that convicted my heart so deeply that it was out of that overflow that the mouth spoke. And uh, and so I want to pray for us um, this morning, if that's okay. And why don't you just take a minute? I just want, let's just wait on the Lord just for a second. Just first group, I just want to pray for. I just want to say I understand, I get it. I've been here so many times. But you just know there's a hardness. There's just a hardness in your heart. And it's like, I, I understand it. I understand the importance. But there's just a hardening there. And um, I really want to pray for you guys. If that's you, why don't you just... Why don't you just, maybe just as a sign to the Lord, open your, your hands in front of you. And I just want to pray that the Lord will soften our hearts. I'm going to do the same thing. And I'm going to say sorry for where I've hardened my heart. And then I'm going to ask for the Holy Spirit to come and to minister and to soften hearts in the room today. And so, Father, we do that. We say that we're sorry for the times when we've lost sight of the lost. And Father, right now, by your Spirit, would you come and soften our hearts where there's been a hardening? Would you come and bring a fresh sense of a zeal, a desire? that all might be saved. For it is your will that all would come to the knowledge and repentance in Son, Jesus Christ. Father, may we share that. And we are sorry. We're sorry for where we've been distracted. For some of you, I just feel that it's like... Um, that's really weird. I feel like some of you have got like a real burning sensation in your feet. And I feel... Has anybody got that? A couple of you? I just feel like the Lord is saying that uh, um, there's this... There's a desire and a gifting in you for evangelism. 
and there's this sense that your feet are burning because you know that you just want to go to the lost. You want to go to those places and you want to minister and reach the lost. And so um, if you just... If, you, if that's you, again, why don't you just uh, just open your, open your arms, maybe put a hand up so people can pray for you. And uh, I just want to just pray for the Spirit just to fill you in that particular, uh, in that particular calling and gift. I just, I feel there's just, I just feel there's a couple more and I feel like one, I feel there's like a, a, a bloke in the room and you're wrestling with it. Holy Spirit, the giver of gifts, you who have ascended Jesus and given us these gifts, these offices, by your Spirit now, would you fill those who are the evangelists in the room? Would you come in power and fill them afresh? Father, would you give them a fresh heart and a fresh sense of your call to the lost? Would you equip them to teach us, to train us for the ministry of reaching the lost? And Father, I just pray that burning sensation in their feet, that that would be real and tangible to them in the days ahead, that they would have known that you spoke to them clearly this morning. Fill them now in Jesus' name. And friends, last group I want to pray for, and probably most of us fall into this, is just those loved ones that we just so long, we just so long that they would come to Jesus. And maybe just take a second just to visualize them. But Father, I would pray that this week, this week, there would be new conversations and new breakthrough. Father, I pray for a fresh boldness upon us all, a fresh conviction upon us all. Father, I pray that we'd be sensitive to what your spirit is doing, that where there is openness, that we wouldn't go in like a bull in a china shop, but that you would give us the right words to say at the right time. Father, may our loved ones see something in us that is overflowing. And as Dallas told us, that they would be so ravished by the blessings of knowing you that they would want the same. And so, Father, we lift up those names and those faces now. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. Amen. Wonderful. Guys.